0: Look at you in church on Halloween. Some of y'all that's actually surprising. You're like, this is not usually where you are. So that's kind of cool. Some of you didn't even know it was Halloween. So you ever have somebody do that, that Jesus juke thing where they tell you it's actually not Halloween, it's reformation day. I'm going to do that to you later. It's a Christian holiday. I'll tell you about it before. We jump in. I want to clear up some confusion about the church. I get a question a lot that I just want to answer and I want to be able to just like settle it, okay? So if you don't have to ask me anymore. A couple of years ago, we did a rebrand, changed the name, changed logo, did a bunch of stuff. Had a lady in the church who wanted to help us do that. She was a graphic, she owned a graphic design company. She was really good at that. She said, I'll do it for free. You don't say no to stuff like that, right? When people tell you they're going to do something for free, you say yes to so that's a good deal, right? So we let her do it. And she came in and we already had some of our colors. It was kind of like black and and gray, which is a little too goth. She said, hey, we need an accent color. I said, cool. She said, yellow. I said, okay. And because you just, you let the experts tell you things because you don't know. So you let them do that, right? And then we bought all the stuff and we did all the things. And then later, a deep, dark secret in her life came out that she was in fact a Steelers fan. and she had bamboozled us into our church colors being uh, an unhappy coincidence that they are now kind of like Steelers. She was excommunicated immediately. We like to have fun with that. Every year we play twice and we do, believe it or not, have a pretty decent mixture of Browns and Steelers fans. So I try not to be too hard on the heathens in the room. But In light of the big game today, I was kind of reflecting this week, I don't know why, on the characteristics of a championship team, even though, let's be honest, all of us, neither one of our teams are really lining up for that right now. So characteristics, what would it take for a team to actually make it to the end, get the big trophy? One, obviously talent, right? You need players. You need players of a certain caliber to be able to make it all the way coaching, right? You need good coaching. You need somebody on the sidelines, somebody in the locker room, somebody in the booth who knows what they're doing. Chemistry is also important, right? You got to get along. You got to actually like each other, maybe both on and off the field or the court or the mat or whatever it is. Um, selflessness, I think is another good characteristic of a championship team, right? You got to put team above self. You got to put the win above the stat line of your own personal, whatever. Um, Another good characteristic is not have half your team get injured. I just threw that one in for a certain nameless team. Would hope that might happen sometime this year. But in all seriousness, it doesn't matter how good your players are if they're standing on the sidelines, right? And then uh, the last one, and this is the one I want to talk about, kind of an overlooked characteristic, uh, maybe an underappreciated aspect of a championship team is how they respond to a loss. How they respond to adversity. How they respond when things do not go the way they wanted them to go. Uh, How do you respond to a mistake? How do you respond when somebody screws up? This is really important. The ability to respond the right way when something goes wrong is a really important characteristic because never does everything go right, right? So if you're gonna make it to the end, you're gonna have mistakes and you're gonna have to respond to those mistakes the right way. A team can get everything else right, but if they crumble or explode when things go wrong, They can't go the distance. The same thing is true of you. You will not hate to burst somebody's bubble. You're not going to live the perfect life. You're not. I don't know if you know that. And even starting now, you're still not going to live the perfect life, right? You're not going to bat a thousand from this point forward. You're going to make mistakes. You're going to screw things up if you really want to become the person that God has created you to be. If you really wanna live out God's mission in your life, if you wanna live out God's purpose in your life, you're gonna to have to learn how to respond when you screw up. And let me clarify some. This is my little asterisk down at the bottom here. I'm gonna say a couple of different things today. I'm gonna to say screw up, I'm gonna say mess up, I'm gonna say mistakes, and then I'm also gonna say sin. When you sin, You. Um, so let me clarify for those, you you theologically astute people, like, well, which one is it? It's all of them, okay? I'm going to say um, that this is going to be helpful. You need to know how to respond when you sin, when you do the thing that God doesn't want you to do. But it's also what we're going to talk about today is bigger than that. I also think you need to know how to respond when you do something that you, you just screw you screw up at work or you mess something up. You need to know how to respond to that as well. So it's kind of all encompassing today. Yes, sin is a part of that, but it's also uh, other things as well. So You need to know how to respond. It's really important how you respond when you mess up, if you want to live the life that God wants you to live. So uh, we've been going through life of David kind of quickly, not, not dwelling on anything. We haven't hit all the details, but today we come to his most famous failure. His most famous failure. And if you have had any time in church, you know what that is. So our first couple of verses are kind of the lead up to the failure. Second Samuel chapter 11, starting in the first verse. In the spring of the year, when kings normally go out to war, David sent Joab and the Israelite army to fight the Ammonites. They destroyed the Ammonite army and laid siege to the city of Rabah. However, David stayed behind in Jerusalem. Now, if this is your first time reading this story, you're going, huh? Wait a minute. It's, it's almost like the narrator's trying to tell you something, right? It's kind of setting something up, a little bit of dark foreshadowing here. Hey, kings are normally at war, but David wasn't. He didn't go. Everybody else went, but he stayed home. He wasn't where he was supposed to be. And that's not a mistake in and of itself, right? That's not wrong. He was, you know, normally kings go out to war. He didn't go. Um, But uh, there is this old saying where uh, men are like pickup trucks. They run better with a load. Ever heard that? Like, so that you're supposed, you're designed to have kind of a weight put on you. You're designed to have responsibility. You're designed to have work existed before the fall existed, right? Where God created us to work, God created us to have responsibility. So when you push that off and you say, hey, I'm not gonna go do that thing that actually is mine to do, uh, you're kind of putting, you're positioning yourself in a dangerous place. So David is not where he's supposed to be. Verse two, late one afternoon after his midday rest, David got out of bed and was walking on the roof of his palace. He looked out over the city and he noticed a woman of unusual beauty taking a bath. Uh, So now uh, at first we're not out Fighting like we're supposed to be. Now he's wandering around the roof of the palace because he has all this free time. And again, free time's not necessarily a bad thing. Free time's not necessarily a sinful thing. But uh, that old youth group, you know, saying comes out in me that you know, uh, free time is the devil's playground or something like that. Did you get anybody grow up in a church like that when they talk about that? But it's kind of there's some truth to that, right? If you have a lot of time then that's a lot more time for things to go the way they're not supposed to go. Uh, So David's wandering around the roof of his castle and he sees something he's not supposed to see. Now, all of us, especially in the day and age we live in, we're all going to see things we're not supposed to see. Again, I want to say, I don't know that David has sinned yet. He's done some things that are questionable. He's, He's on the edge of, you know, shirking his responsibility and all that, but Uh, even that first look, you know, you can't control that. You're going to see things you you don't want to see. You're going to see things that you shouldn't see. You're going to see things that maybe you want to see, but you know you shouldn't want to see. How about that? Is that better? And I think that's where David is here. The question is not, will you see those things? The question is, what are you going to do in that moment? What are you going to choose in that moment? So here's what David does. Verse three, he sent someone to find out who she was and he was told she is Bathsheba. The daughter of Iliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. So, first, I would say, um, instead of leaving it alone, instead of getting his butt back to whatever kings do, he should have gone and done that. He asks about her. Um, He shouldn't have done that. He should have left it alone. He should have ran. The moment he saw what he shouldn't have saw, he should have shut it down. But instead, he sends a messenger to find out who she is. And now he knows, and now he should also shut it down. She's married, dude. Leave it alone. He should walk away, he should be done. But what I want you to see is how every decision David makes kind of starts to lead down this path, down this hill to ultimately where he ends up, which is verse four and five. And since it's awkward, I'll just read it really fast so we can get through the awkwardness together. Then David sent messages to get her. When she came to the palace, he slept with her. She had just completed the purification rites after having her menstrual period. And then she returned home later when Bathsheba discovered that she was pregnant, she sent David a message saying, I'm pregnant, there, it's over. All that's awkward, all of it. So um, he did a bunch of things that maybe were questionable and ended up royally screwing up, royally screwing up, right? And he can't get away from it because it turns out she's pregnant, right? So, so this isn't one of those things that he can just pretend it didn't happen as is usually the case when God doesn't want to let you just get away with something. There's going to be a little, t- a little trailer on it that you can't quite button up. And uh, I don't know, like, you read this story, and it sure seems like what David has done here, besides all this other little stuff, is he's used his power and his status, I will say, to coerce at best, but to force at worst Bathsheba into doing what he wanted. Pretty common story these days. And I don't want to read into the story. Uh, Man, I I read so much, and I listened so much this week. Uh, Everybody has a different take on this. There are people who say Bathsheba played some kind of role, and then there's people who say, that Bathsheba was a a victim here. Um, And we don't know. I don't want to read into it, but I just want to say, if you just look at the surface of what happened, he's king. She's just a a, a subject in his kingdom. This just doesn't feel right what he did. Um, Anyways, no matter how you look at it, David has screwed up royally here. He's big time. It happened. A bunch of little things that weren't necessarily sin led to this very large sin. So what's he going to do? What's David going to do now? He did the thing. He had a lot of off-ramps leading up to the thing. He didn't take any of them. He's done the thing. Now what? How's he going to respond to the mistake? How's he going to respond to the sin? Verse six and seven. Then David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. So Joab sent him David. When Uriah arrived, David confessed his great sin to Uriah, offered to do whatever he could to make up for his sin and beg for forgiveness. Okay, some of you, this is worrisome. You're supposed to laugh at that part. That's not, it's not what happened. It's not. You're not following along in your Bibles. So you think that what I put there, I wrote, it's what should have happened. Samuel didn't write that, I did. It's what he should have done. He should have said, I need to get this guy here because I need to make this right. I need to throw myself at his feet and say, I screwed up, man. I want to make this right. And then just hope that the guy doesn't just kill you right there. But he didn't. He did call for Uriah. He wanted the guy to come. Um, But this not to do this. So there are three ways you can respond when you mess up. There are three ways you can respond when you sin. Two are wrong, one's right. So you can uh, shirk, you can shift, or you can shoulder. You can shirk, shift, or shoulder. David's first reaction here is to shirk the responsibility of his actions. He wants to hide it. He wants to cover it up. He wants to bury. So he calls Uriah uh, to his palace and he spends the next couple of days trying to convince Uriah to go home to his wife uh, because he would like Uriah to sleep with his wife because then there's less questions. There's still some questions, right? Like why does the baby have curly hair? That's weird. And why is the baby 10 pounds when it's two months early? Like those are some questions they're going to have to answer, right? But it's better than the current state of things because at this point, Uriah has been gone a long time. He's going to be Gone even longer. There's going to be a baby and nobody's going to be able to explain it. So, David's trying to give himself an out here. But what happens is, and we don't have time to go into the whole story, what happens is Uriah is such a man of honor that he refuses to go home and and sleep with his own wife because he says, Hey, uh, the men of Israel are out fighting battles. I'm not going to go home and do that. I wouldn't do that. Uh, Which is, by the way, in stark contrast to David, who will sleep with other people's wives while his men are out uh, fighting. Battles that he should be at, so unknowingly is refusing to help David conceal his sin. David trying to shirk the responsibility. Uriah is not having it. So here's what David does, and this is where, if David is your hero, you really start to have a hard time with him because he writes a letter to Joab, the captain of the army, and tells Joab, "Hey, put Uriah where the fighting is the hottest." and pull back all your troops and let him get killed. Then he folds the letter up, puts his kingly seal on that thing, and he hands it to Uriah to deliver to the captain. How jacked up is that? You give a dude his own death sentence and have him carry it to be carried out. And when, what did Uriah do? What was his crime? He married a pretty girl. That's all he did. And David... Sends him with an execution note and he doesn't even know it. I still wonder like what that was like, you know, because Uriah is in the story. He's such a man of honor. Don't you imagine like sitting in a campfire on your way, like holding that letter? Wouldn't you want to know what the heck was in it? (laughs) Like, I would have really loved to have read that letter if I was Uriah. And uh, obviously he didn't because I think probably would have done something different. But that's what happens. Joab does what David asked him to do and Uriah dies because of David's orders. He uses his power as king to sleep with Bathsheba and kill her husband. And then he takes Bathsheba as his wife. So sin to cover up sin to cover up sin. Three things happen when you go this route, when you mess up, when you go the shirking route, I'm going to shirk my responsibility. I'm going to try and cover it up. I'm going to try and conceal it. I'm going to try to evade what I've done. Three things happen. Number one, Uh, You enable when you sin that way and then you try to cover up sin, you enable more sin because when you try and hide, when you try and cover up, inevitably you're going to have to add sin on top of sin. You're going to have to add to your mistake. One mistake will become a string of mistakes. One strikeout is going to become a slump. One loss is going to become a losing streak because you're going to have to keep going in order to keep up the charade. And that's what happens, right? David didn't mess up one time. He messed up a bunch of times, a bunch of little things and then a couple of really big ones and he never blinks. He shouldn't have been home. He shouldn't have allowed himself to get bored. He shouldn't have saw what he saw. He shouldn't have asked who it was. He shouldn't have sent for her. He shouldn't have slept with her. He shouldn't have sent for Uriah. He shouldn't have killed Uriah. None of those things should have happened. But that's what happens when you try and conceal. It's not one sin. It's now a pile of sins that he's trying to cover up Second thing that happens when you shirk your responsibility and sin is it enhances the consequences. I mean, think about it. The consequences for a person who blows it and comes clean are much better than for a person who blows it and tries to cover up the thing, tries to hide the thing. And then they're finally outed. It's worse, right? The pain is increased. The road back is longer. It's like buying something on a credit card and not paying. The interest is always running. As long as you have it concealed, the interest is running on the thing that you did and it's going to be worse and worse until it comes out. And then the third thing that happens is it erodes trust, right? If you do something, and you try to hide the thing. I mean, there's a big difference between coming clean and getting caught, right? Anybody can attest to that. If you've ever been in a situation where, where you caught somebody instead of them coming clean, it means something. If you come clean, that is actually the first step in rebuilding the trust that you destroyed. But if you get caught, you did even more damage to that trust. And by the way, you should highly value trust. Highly value trust. Trust is one of the most difficult things in the world to get. I mean, it's expensive. It takes a long time to build and a few seconds to destroy. Trust is one of the most valuable things you have. So those are the three things that happen when you try to shirk your responsibility when you send, you try to cover it up and you try to hide it. So don't do that. It's so much worse. So much worse. Second way you can respond. So you're going to mess up. I'm just going to keep reminding you this. You're going to mess up. The first way you can respond is you can try to hide this thing. You can shirk your responsibility. The second way is to shift. Now, David doesn't actually do this in the story. So we're going to jump to a different Bible story to see this one. But um, at least not that we have recorded for us, because I actually believe this is a pretty classic human response to messing up. This is a classic human response to sin. It's to shift the responsibility onto someone or something else. Right? We're like really good at this. You know, you made me mad. That's why I said what I said. It's actually your fault that came out of my mouth, believe it or not. Right? I did what I did because they did what they did. I, I did it in response. It's it's actually because of what they did that I did this. If they hadn't said that, I wouldn't have done this. If they hadn't did this, I wouldn't have done that. If Bathsheba hadn't been taken a bath out in public, you know, I wouldn't have seen her. Right. Or if Uriah had been home, I wouldn't have asked for her. If the servants would have said anything to me, I would have stopped. David could have done all those things. Now we don't know, but this is, this tends to be how humans respond when we mess up. Shifting responsibility, shifting blame, it comes as naturally as breathing. Let me ask you if you have kids, did you have to teach your kid to say, No, it was my sister's fault? Did anybody have to go through that and be like, Okay, so when you mess up, say it's their fault? Did it? No, you didn't have to teach that, right? It just came out of them. They didn't have to see it, they didn't have to learn it. They're just really good at it, they're naturally good at shifting the responsibility for the thing they did it's a part i actually believe it is a part of our spiritual dna so if you go all the way back to the beginning the very beginning when adam and eve first eat the fruit that they shouldn't now the first thing they do is hide right so they actually try the they try play number one we're gonna hide they're gonna shirk their responsibility it doesn't work because god knows where they are by the way it doesn't work god knows where you are always um and then the second thing they do when god says hey adam what's up dude you you hate the fruit. So Adam does two things. And this is actually a brilliant play on his part. He said, it's the woman. So he tried, you, everybody always says it's the woman. But then he continues, that you gave me. It's actually, God, it's, it's not her fault, really. <laughs> it's your fault for giving me this woman. Like how jacked up is, that was Adam's first instinct is to push blame, not necessarily onto Eve. It was kind of like a nice little play to get the responsibility for what he did onto God. And then God moves on to Eve and Eve Answers and she says, Well, it's actually the devil's fault. <laughs> so, so they're uh, the, our first parents, Adam and Eve, the very first m- screw up, the very first mistake, the very first sin, they immediately are shifting responsibility onto somebody else. It comes naturally. It's a part of our fallen nature to shift responsibility. If you don't want to do this, you're going to have to swim upstream. You're naturally going to shirk and you're going to shift. So, I have two boys. We have Four kids, a lot, two boys in the middle. So I have an oldest daughter and a youngest daughter. And then we have two boys in the middle. One's 10 and one's four, almost five. And I'll just be transparent with you. They don't get along very well. The four-year-old and the almost five-year-old, Gideon and Zeke. I have not figured it out yet. Why? I, I mean, I know why, I guess I haven't figured out how to fix it. So as you could imagine, there's just with the gap, with the age difference, They're kind of on different levels, but man, they can find things to fight about. I know if you don't have kids, you think like movies are exaggerated, but just so you know, like literally yesterday or two days ago, they were looking at like a target toy magazine, like at all the different toys and they got in a fight because one was breathing on the other one. That was the fight, the whole thing. And literally yelling it across the house. Like he's breathing on me. I mean, I'm like, this is not real, but it is real. It is very real. Now the little one's horrible because he will, (laughs) he is. If you know Zeke, he's way smarter than he should be for a four-year-old and he's manipulative. So he will try to get the older one in trouble. And he does the thing. If you, if you watch soccer, if you're a soccer, I'm not going to disparage that. Go ahead and be a soccer fan. There's billions of people who are. It's America. You should watch football too, but whatever. If you have ever watched like the highlights in soccer or I guess the lowlights, where like one guy will get hit and he acts like he got shot, like, oh, and he falls over and like he's holding his leg even though he got hit in the shoulder. Weird stuff like that. Zeke does that to Gideon. He tries to get him in trouble. Like if they walk by each other and he bumps into him, he'll like throw himself onto the floor and act like he got hurt. Just try and get him in trouble. I see what that, man, they're, they're like, they are not, they're frenemies right now. It is not a good situation. But here's the deal. So when the little one does this, that's one thing. But it's always that the older one cannot seem. To walk away. He can't seem to ignore it. He always engages. He always has to fight back. So they both end up getting in trouble. Now, I try to reason with the older one. Zeke, even though he's smart, he's like, whatever, you're just in trouble and you know what you did. But the older one, I'm trying to have like those conversations. And by the way, just so you know, I'm not a parenting expert, I'm withholding all of my parenting advice until my kids are 40. And m- maybe actually, we'll see how they turn out. I don't know anything. Everything's an experiment right now. So I'm trying to have a conversation with him. I'm trying to reason with him. Now, my son is unreasonable. <laughs> my wife can tell you a couple months back, we were driving this really long talk. It was like an hour long and I was really tired of it. And I'm like, why are you, you are so stubborn? And he's like, dad, I can get that from you. you. And he said, it right. I know. But I'm trying to talk to him about his little brother. And I'm like, just don't react, don't respond. And he will use language. He talks like... He made me angry. I would not have done what I did if he hadn't done what he did. He did this so I had to respond. And he talks like he cannot control himself once the little one does what the little one does. So it's a very difficult thing to deal with because I'm trying to get him to see like, buddy, like if you would not respond, you wouldn't get in trouble. But he acts like he can't do it. Like it is completely Zeke's fault. We fought with him for an hour just to say the word I one day. And I'm not, again, I am not kidding. He just kept saying, well, Zeke does this and Zeke does this. I just wanted him to start a sentence with I, and he wouldn't do it. That's how stubborn he is. Um, that tells you something about me. Um, but he would not take it. He kept pushing and pushing responsibility. So where it comes to, as I, I end up telling him, and he hates this, I end up telling him, dude, you are a puppet. And that four-year-old is the puppet master. And he has the strings and he can make you dance anytime he wants, because you're going to respond every single time. And you're going to get in trouble every single time. And then I see a little four-year-old walk by like this, you know, and I kick him. Just kidding. Um, kind of, he deserves it, but he's a puppet. He's a puppet. So here's the thing, and this is what I want you to know when it comes to taking responsibility. Really important sentence for you to remember. And again, it's bigger than just your sin. This is, your sin is important. If, if you're doing something that God doesn't want you to do, you need to take responsibility for that. But it's not just that. It's also your financial situation. It's your health. It's your relationship status. It's your spiritual temperature. It's your career. It's all that. Your entire life, listen to this sentence. If you refuse to take responsibility for it, you are giving up the power to change it. If you give up the response, if you refuse to take responsibility, you are giving up the power. When you blame someone, when you blame some situation, when you uh, blame some circumstance, you give up your power to change the thing. That's what happens. When you shift responsibility, you make yourself a puppet of whatever the thing you shift the responsibility onto. It's nice because you don't have the blame anymore. But the trade was you also gave the power away. You've given up your power. You've given up your power to choose. You've given up your power to change. You've given up your power to turn things around. Man, you don't want that. That's not a good trade. Take the blame, but keep the power. Don't give up blame and give up power. You're stuck now. Well, it's the economy's fault. It's, it's the internet. It's, it's I was going to say a president. I don't even know which one to say. All of them. It's still still Obama's fault. Let's go back all the way back there. Thanks, Obama. If you keep doing that, if you keep saying it's her fault, it's his fault, it's this fault, it's this fault of this circumstance, you will never change. You'll never change because you've given the power to that thing. And let me push this even further. I believe that one of the major differences between a successful person and an unsuccessful person. And I'll mean that spiritually and not spiritually. I mean, both like in the world and in the spiritual world, the difference between somebody who lives out their purpose and somebody who doesn't, the difference between somebody who lives out God's mission for them and somebody who doesn't, the difference is the people who do take responsibility in their life. And the people who don't, they shift it, they shirk it, they try to get rid of responsibility. That is the difference. I mean, it's not the difference. It's one of the major differences. So if you want to be somebody who's successful, you want to be somebody who actually lives out God's purpose, God's mission in their life, you need to take responsibility. You need to go with the third option, which is to shoulder the responsibility. You need to accept it. So this is the third option. And this is, believe it or not, David does eventually get there. I know You think very much less of him, right? But let's get to all the way to the end of the story. So here's what happens. God sends a prophet named Nathan to talk to David and speak some truth to him. So here's how it goes down. This is like a movie scene here. So David, just keep in mind, David thinks he's covered this whole thing up. Uriah is dead. He's married Bathsheba. He thinks everything's great. Here walks in Nathan in uh, chapter 12, verse one. So the Lord said, Nathan, the prophet, to tell David this story. There were two men in a certain town. One was rich and one was poor. The rich man owned a great many sheep and cattle. The poor man owned nothing but one little lamb he had bought. He raised little lamb. It grew up with his children. It ate from the man's own plate and drank from his cup, kind of the way some of you treat your dogs. It's weird. He cuddled in his arms like a baby daughter. One day, a guest arrived at the home of the rich man, but instead of killing an animal from his own flock or herd, he took the poor man's lamb and killed it and prepared it for his guests. Evil villain. By the way, this story is brilliant. This is, this has, it kind of smells like a Jesus story. Jesus used to do this. He'd tell these kind of stories. And what these stories do, it's like he's sneaking a truth past your defenses, right? Because we all have defenses. If I just come out and say something, we have defenses against the truth. But if you tell a little story like this, it kind of sneaks past those defenses like a, like a mine that he's just planting there to explode later. So David's leaning in, he's salivated. Who is this evil man that would take somebody's one little lamb that he cuddles with at night? And when he's got a whole flock, like who would do that? So here's David leaning in, you can see his face getting red, he's hot. Verse five, David was furious as surely as the Lord lives He vowed, any man who would do such a thing deserves to die. He must repay four lambs to the poor man for the one he stole and for having no pity. David is ready to pounce, man. Let's kill this dude. I cannot believe he just did that. As surely as the Lord lives. Yeah, David, he does. (laughs) He does live. And then in one of the best mic drop moments in the Bible, verse 7, then Nathan said to David, you are the man. Just imagine a court full of like rich and royal people all around David. And Nathan just steps up and growls. You are the man. And everybody's like. <laughs> and then Nathan goes on a tirade about how God's given David everything. And, and if it wasn't enough, David could have even asked God and he would have given him more. Like that's how generous God is to David. And it's like you blew it. You took what wasn't yours and you killed the man you took it from. He just lays him flat. So here we are again, I guess, at a point of decision, right? David has to decide. What's he going to do? Because now he's been confronted. He's chosen the wrong thing at every turn, right? Every turn down this path every, and down this path, right? Every turn he's chosen the wrong thing to get here. He's currently thinking he's got it covered up and now he's being confronted. How many of you just love to be confronted in your life when you screw up? Isn't this your favorite? Especially when it's your spouse, right? Don't you love it when they call you out on your crap? Isn't that like you're just your favorite thing? Sarcasm is one of my gifts, by the way. So there's two kinds of people in the room, right? There's one, there's the people who apologize for everything and you even apologize for apologizing and that's awesome. And the other group, Loves you, by the way. The, then there are those of us, and you, if you're like me, you're stubborn, like by some, you're maybe a little competitive, and I'll call it what it is. You got a little streak of pride. And when somebody confronts you, your instinct is to not say you're sorry, right? Your instinct is to put up the defenses. And then also, if you're like me, uh, you don't just play defense, you play offense, right? You're, oh, I did this. Well, guess what? You did this. And I'm really good at, at, at sneaking around. And putting you back on your defenses. I shouldn't tell you all this, this is horrible. Um, so, when you get put in these situations, when someone's confronting you, when someone's putting it out, here's what you did, again, you have a choice. And I don't know which kind David is David and not Mr. I'm sorry for saying I'm sorry. David is competitive, David is a little bit prideful, David is super stubborn. David could have Nathan killed right now. You know that? Like, I know we always read the story. And by the way, that's the other thing about the story in ancient times. I mean, you got to think about this. Kings did this kind of stuff all the time. This actually wasn't abnormal for a king to do whatever he wanted. And nobody's going to say anything. It's unique in Israel that they had law. They had a a moral law that God gave them that said, don't do that. And it's unique in Israel that they had a prophet who could come in and call the king out and say, you're not living the way God said for you to live. This is actually a completely Unique situation. But David could still say, kill that guy, get rid of him, shut him up, gag him. So he has a choice. Verse 13, though, he actually finally makes the right one. Then David confessed to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. I guess I wanted to tell you all that to get you to see how difficult that would have been for David, even at this point in the story, to actually say those words I did it. I sinned against God. This is where he should have started, by the way. He should have started there. Took the long way. Some of y'all get that. That's kind of your MO in life. You take the long way to get to things. You you get it eventually, but could have been a lot faster. But he finally chooses here to shoulder the responsibility for what he did. No more shirking, no more shifting. He's going to shoulder this thing. Now, what David said in this sentence, I have sinned against the Lord. That's true of you too, right? That's going to be true of you. It's going to be consistently true of you that you are going to, in your life, sin against the Lord. And every time that sentence is true of you, it is an opportunity for you to respond the right way. It is. I know it's a weird way to look at it, but every time you mess up, it's an opportunity for you to respond to your screw-up the right way. It's an opportunity for you to respond to your sin the right way. And I think that this is so important. This is so important you have to get this right. You have to get this right. You have to learn how to respond to your sin the right way. So I want to give you four steps to responding to sin or responding to mistakes in your life. And it will work for any of you. It will work for whether it's a sin or some stupid thing that you did. So here's the first one. First thing you do when you screw up is you own it. Number one, you own it. You don't hide it. You don't blame it. You don't excuse it. You don't minimize it. You don't justify it. You own it. I did this thing. I made this mistake. I take full responsibility. That's step one. And by the way, what do you think about when you hear somebody say that? How, what's your perception of somebody when somebody says, you know what? That's on me. I take full responsibility for that. What's your perception of them? You respect them, right? Like, you respect the person who actually does that. What about the opposite? Think about the politician who says something like mistakes were made. You just want to say, bye, who, dummy? Come on, like, tell me more, right? That's how you feel. So think about it. When you look at two people and how they respond to a mistake, you actually admire the person who says, that was me. I take responsibility for that. So if you admire it in somebody else, don't you, don't you want that? Don't, isn't that the person you want to be? The person who's, who says, I'm owning. This is me. This one's on me. So that's your step one. Own it. It's mine. That's what a man does, by the way. Men, adults, they shoulder responsibility. That's But boys, children, they shift, they shirk. If you want to be an adult, if you want to be a, a mature human being, a mature Christian, you shoulder responsibility. That's one. You own it. Two, ask for forgiveness. Say these magic words. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. If you want to be fancy, I apologize. That's a little classier, we guess. We can go that route. I'm sorry. And don't do the thing with your I'm sorry where you start adding words to it. If you, a dangerous word to add to I'm sorry is the next word would be if. Don't do that, don't do that. And I like, can I caution you against adding the word if to your sentence that starts with I'm sorry, because you're gonna go down a path that you don't wanna go down if you keep going, if you say the word if, because you could say the worst sentence, I think to say when you're trying to apologize, I'm sorry if you feel that way. That is not an apology. That is an assault, by the way, right? Them's fighting words. If you, but just husbands look at it. If you say that sentence to your wife, you just, you just fired the first shot or the second shot and you are in for a war. And don't do the, I'm sorry, but, I'm sorry, but, and then give 45 reasons why you did what you did and you want to explain, you want to tell them all this stuff that went into it and all you're doing is repackaging, shirking and, and, and shifting the responsibility. You may need to give reasons, but in your apology is not the place for your reasons. Wait till later for that. Your apology needs to stand alone. And then the, another very dangerous one, I'm sorry that you're so sensitive because it didn't seem like that big of a deal to me. Uh, That's a dangerous one too. Don't minimize the thing um, that you are apologizing for. The correct way to apologize to say, I'm sorry thing I did please forgive me. I'm sorry. Thing I did. Please forgive me. The end. That is the correct way to ask for forgiveness. Don't add to it. So you own it. You ask for forgiveness. Number three, and this is unique to David. It's kind of cool. Pray for limited fallout for others. David, uh, in his Psalms, he prays, that his sin would not hurt his family and his country. He wants it to be minimized. He wants it to be concentrated on him. He wants the weight to fall on him. Notice I didn't say pray, pray for limited fallout for you. I said pray for limited fallout for others. And this is what happens, by the way, when you sin, when you mess up, it's, there's a ripping, there's a tearing, there's collateral damage when you make a mistake. And David incorporated into this process, he wanted to pray to make sure, man, God, please minimize this. Drop the hammer on me. Don't hit everybody else with this. one. That's the right attitude. That's the right heart. And then four, resolve to change. David decides that he does not want to be this guy anymore. All his prayers revolve around this idea of God giving him a new heart, changing him from the inside out. David doesn't want to stay the same. And by the way, this one's kind of the most important step. Because if you never change, then all your I'm sorry's sound, start to sound really hollow. And eventually, if you keep not changing and keep apologizing for the thing that you're refusing to change, your apologies are gonna to start to hurt the person you're apologizing to. You have to take steps. And I'm not saying be perfect, and I'm not saying you're gonna have this perfectly, gradually increasing line in your life. It's gonna be two steps forward, three steps back. There's gotta be progress. There's gotta move. And by the way, you can't change yourself. You can't do that. You've tried that, right? You need God. You need the Holy Spirit to move in your life. You do not have the ability to change your own heart. That's a God thing. That's a God level. That's on his resume, not yours. You need to ask God for help in that. That's what David does. David's begging God, change my heart. My heart is the thing that led me down this path. Change that. I can change my behavior, but that's not going to really solve it. God, I need you to change in here. in here. So you own it. You ask for forgiveness. You pray for limited fallout, and you resolve to change. Those four things. There's a fancy Christian word for the process just described. It's called repentance. So, October 31st, 1571, exactly 449 years ago, Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to a door in Wittenberg, starting the Protestant Revolution. No. If you're newer to church, you like, oh, here we go. Now we're in the part where I don't understand what's happening. Don't worry about it. It's just history. It's where the Protestant church and the Catholic church kind of parted ways. They started doing their own thing. So like I said in the beginning, this isn't just Halloween. It's Reformation Day. So instead of just asking for candy, you could go around pounding notes into people's doors if you wanted to. That could be a very Christian thing you could do. But he wrote 95 theses, 95 like bullet points about stuff that's wrong with the way the church was doing it. He wanted to reform the way the church was going. And his first one on the list, this is number one. He said this, when our Lord and master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. He willed the entire life of the believers to be one of repentance. So what he's saying there is, it's really easy to slip into this thing where as a Christian, you say, hey, I asked for forgiveness. I accepted what Jesus did on the cross. I repented. Done. But Martin Luther's like, actually, that's the wrong way to think about it. You need to be constantly repenting because you're not perfect yet. When you became a Christian, you didn't magically become perfect. You're going to still have things that you need to repent of. Your whole life needs to be one of, hey, I own that. Hey, forgive me. Hey, I want to change. Your whole life is a process of, of repenting. Constantly. Because you're going to keep screwing up and you need God to keep changing you. your whole life. It's so, interesting way to think. You're never going to stop that. And I just want to ask, who would you rather be around in your life? Would you rather be around a bunch of people who shirk responsibility, a bunch of people who shift responsibility, or would you rather be around people who shoulder? Would you, you want to be around somebody all the time who is terrible at saying, I'm sorry? Do you really want to live with somebody like that? Or would you rather be around somebody who's really good at it, who owns their stuff and says, they're sorry and resolves to change and makes progress. Who do you want to be around? You know, the answer then be that person. How cool would it be? How different would your life look? By the way, the thing you've given up is your pride. I know that's a sacred thing. That's all it is. You just gotta, you just gotta give that to God. How magnetic could that be, though, in your life? If you're the guy who's, what if you resolved? You know what? I'm going to get really good at repenting. I'm going to get really good at owning my stuff, at apologizing and resolving. I'm going to get really good at that. mean, what would your life look like? What would your relationships look like if you set out for that to be the thing? Wow. Worship team, why don't you guys come up here? And then, what would a church look like? A church full of people who got really good. At repentance. What would a church full of people who said, you know what, we're going to own our stuff, we're going to ask for forgiveness, we're going to resolve to change? Can you imagine people coming into this church and saying, man, like they're not perfect, but they're really good at owning it and, and apologizing? Can you imagine how magnetic that would be in, a, in our culture where people don't do that? People try to find ways to push it off all the time. If they came in and this was a haven of repentance, <laughs> it'd be magnetic. Pray with me. Jesus, I pray for the person right now who isn't good at it. They know it. And they're having a war within themselves right now. Because they know, they recognize truth. And they want to be good at this. They want to take a step towards it, but they got something holding them back. Or they got another voice saying, you're going to fail. I'm to pray that you would silence they would want to take a step towards a you know, person of repentance. I pray for the relationships in this room that have been damaged by being bad at this, Lord. I pray for healing and your spirit to just overflow. It start to go down the right path, Lord. And I pray for us as a church, that this would be something that marked us, that we would be a people of repentance, a people who own their stuff, apologize for their stuff, resolve the shame pre use that to drop people to Jesus leaving for